Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that during this time of year we can stop and we can remember the Christ child. And this morning as we come to your word, we ask that you will still the thoughts of our mind. We pray that you will slow the beat of our heart. Help us to be open, attentive, and receptive to what you have for each of us. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few years ago, you're going to need to look up here. I was gifted a white IKEA clip-in sofa. This one. I had great plans for this sofa, okay? Great plans. The amazing stories it was going to tell, the life that we were going to live on this sofa. It was going to be great. But as sometimes happens in life, your best laid plans don't come to pass. So I had to give this sofa up and temporarily store it at a friend's place. It was only going to be for a couple of weeks, but the weeks stretched into a few months. And I realized I'd been separated from this sofa for so long that it was almost out of my memory. But one day as I sat, I had a vision of my lonely, languishing, white IKEA sofa. And in a peak of medieval chivalry, I knew I had to go and rescue my damsel in distress. So I went to my friend's place, I knocked on his door, I said, John, I need my sofa back. I knew I couldn't bring it back to where I was living, but I figured that maybe I could rehouse this sofa and give it a better home. Give her to a family that would love, cherish, and adore her. Give her to a family that maybe could have this sofa as the centerpiece for some really good IG pictures. Maybe even one day end up on a board on Pinterest. So I decided I needed to give this sofa up. I took a picture and I decided that I was going to put it on Craigslist. And my friend said to me, hold on, have you sold anything before on Craigslist? I said, no, but I've bought plenty of stuff. How hard can it be? And he looked at me and said, listen, you need to be careful because everything is not always as it seems when you use Craigslist. I ignored him. I said, how hard can it be? I pushed uh, send and posted this sofa on Craigslist. Within three hours, I had responses. One response had said he was interested. I uh, went back to him, but he had moved on. And then I got this response from Allison. Allison sent me uh, uh, a question about the sofa, and I responded, and I said, hi, Allison, the sofa is still available. Let me know when you want to look at it. And then Allison, who was eager for this sofa, wanted to give it a good home response in this way. She says, it's a little unconventional, thanks for getting back to me. I am interested in purchasing your furniture. But the only way I can get it is through a check which I will make to you through UPS. So she's telling me how she's gonna do this. Then she continues, Alison, I'm willing to wait for the check to clear before the pickup is done. I will be responsible for the pickup. It will be done by my movers. This payment will be included in the check I mail to you. This is all due to me being deaf and it makes me hard to deal with this. 
Also, it will make the transaction better and quicker. I know you were not expecting this. She is very, very smart. I was not expecting this. And I'd have loved to come for a viewing, but I can't. I really want this, and I'm offering you an extra $50 for you to delete the ad and reserve it for me. I am settling into my new house, looking for good furniture deals to furnish my place with. If you are okay with this, please send me extra pictures if you have any, and get back to me with your full name, your physical address, and your final price. So to this most intriguing offer, I responded to Alison. I said, thanks, Alison. Here's my name. Use having a laugh, mate. Here's my address. 100 Main Street, Seattle, 98999. And here's the price, $150. Now, Alison did not get my tongue-in-cheek re reply, so really wanting this sofa, Alison sends me another message. She says, hope you had a wonderful day. Can you please get back to me if you are able to deposit the check today as I would like to schedule the pickup for Friday evening? Look forward to your email. So now I'm thoroughly confused because I have no address if I wanted to send her a check and I didn't know I was supposed to send her one so I sent this final email to bring the whole sordid affair to a close. Alison, I deal only locally. The check won't be received or cashed. Please don't contact unless it's to deal locally. Thank you. And if you won't, <laughs> and if you want to know why, enjoy reading this, www.craigslist.org forward slash about forward scams. Thank you. <laughs> she didn't respond after this. Now, I knew that Alison was really just a spam bot trolling the internet, sending automated messages to postings like this on Craigslist, on eBay. And then once someone responded, someone physical would come behind Alison and would engage in a conversation to try to separate you from your hard-earned money or your hard or your, or your loved item. On Craigslist, everyone is looking for treasure amongst trinkets. Everyone is trying to find a deal. Everyone's looking for a bargain on Craigslist. And we spend time looking, we spend time refreshing, we spend time bidding so that we can get what we hope is going to be treasure, what's going to be useful in our life. But there are unscrupulous and shady figures that lurk in the background of Craigslist who lurk there just to entice, to deceive, and to catfish unsuspecting and innocent people. These people on Craigslist will promise you jewels, but they will deliver junk. They will advertise treasure, but they will give you trinkets. They are hucksters hauling mirages, seducing swindlers who are pushing your sanity to the edge. And no one likes to be sold a bill of goods, whether it's a coupon for a half-price Martinelli's that turns out to be a bum coupon and you don't get your half-price Martinelli's. Whether it's a slick insurance salesperson who is slippery about the details of the important coverages and then when you need it, it makes a material uh, harm to your life. Nobody likes to be tricked. No one likes to have an air miles card where you are able to build up air miles, but the airline has so many blackout dates and so many uh, details that you are unaware of that you literally cannot get a flight other than in, in a time that you would never use. To be tricked is painful. And to anticipate something which then 
turns out to be junk instead of jewels, trinkets instead of treasure, is a particularly painful event. And during Advent, we talk about anticipating uh, an event or a person. And during that time of year, we think about the Christ child, the Messiah. We think about him coming into this world and incarnating as the jewel of the universe. And it's interesting to me because those who waited 2,000 years ago were waiting and they did not have assurance that they were going to get either junk or jewels, treasure or trinket, but they waited and they hoped. And one of the most incredible stories in the story of Advent, one of the most interested parties who were waiting to see, is this going to be junk or jewels, treasure or trinket, was a group that scholars have looked at and have been long fascinated by. And this group were not looking half-hearted. They took months. Scholars say they may have even taken years looking and searching for this treasure. They looked so much that they would have put any person on Craigslist to shame with their tenacity, with their single-mindedness of purpose. And we are talking, of course, about the uh, Magi from the East, or as most of us know them, the wise men. And did you know, FYI, that these wise men, the Bible doesn't tell us that A, there were kings, or that there were three of them. It just, we know there were three gifts, but we don't know there were three of them, and we certainly don't know that they were kings, but that's beside the point. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And so they come looking for the king of the Jews. These wise men were more likely astrologers than they were kings after the category of those in the book of Daniel that we had been looking through this autumn. These were people that gave advice, that were diviners for their kings and for their governments. And here they are in Matthew looking for the king of the Jews. And in the Old Testament, Before Jesus Christ has arrived on the stage of planet Earth, incarnate in the flesh of humanity, we find that God's project of salvation has been concentrated through specific people or through one particular family, the family of Abraham. They have been given the promise by God that through them and then into the nation of Israel, salvation would come. And in Genesis chapter 12, we read this promise that God gave to Abram. He says, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was the initial incipient promise given to a small family, which then uh, broadens into a nation of the Jews. And then Jesus Christ arrives, a Jew born to Jews, in a vassal Jewish territory in the crook of the elbow of an ancient economy. And you would have thought that the entire place would have been on tiptoes. You'd have thought that there should have been a countdown clock, that Jesus Christ is coming, the prophecy is about to be fulfilled, and everything needs to stop. You know, stop the presses. 
The one who we have been talking about since Abraham has finally come. But instead, when you read the narrative, you find it's essentially crickets. Jesus Christ arrives and nobody is expecting him. Jesus Christ arrives and nobody is anticipating him. It's as if, oh, sure, the Messiah has come, but what does that really mean? And so we find in this story that those who are looking for the Messiah with arguably the greatest effort, the greatest cost, the greatest risk are magi from the East. And there are numerous ideas about the identity, the specific identity of these magi. There are some people who tell us that perhaps they were astrologer priests. Some say, no, they were astrologer magicians. Some say, no, actually, they were wise people from the Zoroastrian tradition coming from Persia looking for the king of the Jews. And whoever these people were, we know for sure they were not Jews. They were not part of the lineage or the heritage that had been given to Abraham. And I think to myself that when these uh, wise men came, that the, tr- that the reception they would have been given would have been frosty from these priests. Not only were they Jews, but we're told that they were wise. They were sort of diviners in what they did. And the Bible was very clear about how you dealt with that sort of person. Leviticus chapter 1926 uh, says you shall not eat anything with blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. Deuteronomy 18, 9 and 10 says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft or soothsayer or is a, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens or is a sorcerer. And so if you were going to categorize who these wise men are, I think you could have found some pretty big hooks in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And yet we find Matthew, the friend of Jesus, Matthew writing the gospel about the life of the incarnate God, speaking with approbation about these wise men. And so we are told, in essence, that in this story of the Messiah, that Gandaldorf and Dumbledore, that Merlin and Glinda are coming to see the king of the Jews. That these people who are coming from a tradition far outside the chosen, far outside those who have been called to be repositories of the word of God are the ones who have taken the greatest risk, who have taken the greatest cost, and who are now looking for the Messiah. And during Advent, I am often challenged by this unnerving and unsettling truth that the proximity of religious people to the story of God is no guarantee of our inclination to follow the way of God. I am challenged that proximity does not equal a relationship. I am challenged that those who should have known, that those who had the most information, the most access, were the ones who missed him. I am challenged when I read the story. In fact, Ellen White, one of the early writers of the church, writing in Desire of Ages about this particular portion, says that the priests are rehearsing traditions, they extol their religion and their own piety while they denounce the Greeks and Romans as heathens and sinners above others. And then she continues, the wise men are not idolaters. In the sight of God, they stand far higher than do these. 
his professed worshippers, yet they are looked upon by the Jews as heathen. Even among the appointed guardians of the holy oracles, their eager questionings touch no chord of sympathy. And so during Advent, you know, even though it's a beautiful season, the beautiful of lights is a season of goodwill, it's a, a season of generosity and family. It's also a time where as followers of the risen Christ, we must look at ourselves and ask if we are standing in the same place that the priest did as holy keepers of the oracles of God with lots of information who are missing the Christ. And we have to grapple with this unsettling truth that familiarity with the story of Christ coming can cause us to actually treat treasure like trinkets and jewels like junk. And there are some of us who like the religious prophets and the scholars and priests of old know all about the prophecies. We've memorized the timelines. We've printed the charts. We know the explanations and we can expound them to you. We know the histories and we can give you the dates. We are excited by Bible prophecy and we look with anticipation to the second advent of Jesus Christ. And yet the theory of Christ is more interesting than the reality of receiving him. And so we have a Christ who is now confined to theory and to exciting esoteric conjecture and a Christ who becomes more palatable to us when we lock him in charts and dates than in the guise of looking at Christ who's coming to us in the lost, the lonely, the last, and the least. And so we miss Christ because we have locked him in prophetic charts and in timelines. We're more interested in the crisis than we are in the Christ. And even today within certain quarters of Christianity, I also watch with continuing and increased alarm at the syncretism between national exceptionalism and religious power, which continues to happen. And as Adventists, we speak about this from the, um, from the roots of Revelation 13, this idea of syncretism where you have a national power which has allied itself with religious power and there's this syncretism which happens. And I'm reminded during this season of Advent that if we had had wise men come from the East, there are some quarters of Christianity who would have rejected them because they would have come with last names like Khan and Ali and Hussein and Chowdhury and Udin and Ahmed. And we'd have said, oh, I'm sorry, he is our Christ for our nation, for our tradition. You are outside of the bounds of who can be received into this message of good news. And yet there are still others of us who for us would say, ah, oh, prophecies, who cares? I don't care about that. I couldn't tell you the last time I read one of those things. I try to wash that from my brain from having horrendous childhood experiences. And for those who are in that corner during the season of Advent, perhaps the challenge for us is to heed the words of Peter in 2 Peter, where he says, they will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. 
And so for us, the Christ that we worship is handcuffed in the perfumed mist of our optimism, our privilege, and our comfort. We have standing, status, and access like the priests and scholars. Our life is comfortable. We have no desperate or urgent need for Christ to come again. Life is good. We can pay our bills. We're almost done paying the note on our house. We can make it. We don't need Christ. And I don't know where you stand, but Advent challenges me. And here we have these wise men who receive a dream from God and they obey it. They travel thousands of miles and they are not condemned or corrected or censured by scripture. Although their mediums and methods are not approved biblically by God, they are welcomed by God and they are recorded in holy writ as having searched and found and worshiped Jesus, the King of the universe. And in Advent, we recall this truth this absolute basic fundamental truth of scripture that the profligate welcome of God is not restricted to those who are part of the in club or who consider themselves part of the chosen. That in Advent, God's frontiers of his kingdom are always expanding and expand into places and into people that we might not be comfortable with, but it expands nevertheless. I remember a few years ago, standing in the lobby of a church, um, I was pastoring and having someone come and say, hey, pastor, somebody uh, wants to talk to you. And when that happens, I've learned from experience, before I'd be really excited, like, yes, someone wants to talk to me, great. But after a few conversations, the excitement becomes tempered and you start to be cautious. So when someone, I'm told someone wants to speak to you, pastor, I kind of go in a little timidly and I see two people who look like they have walked off the casting script of a Hollywood film and the film would probably have been The Suicide uh, Squad, okay? They are the type of people, if you had seen my friends, you may probably cross the street so you don't have to be with them or pull your children closer to you. When I go, and start speaking to them, I see that on the knuckles of um, is a, a, um, a gentleman and his friend, on his knuckles he had some very spicy things written that I cannot repeat. And they were, uh, they were anti-Semitic, and he had them on here. So I'm sort of looking at him thinking, okay, I have no idea what's going to happen, but I wish I had carried the conversation in the lobby where I could be seen. And so here he is, he has a teardrop, tattoo he has and I kid you not he has another tattoo with two horns right here in the in the nook of his hairline and I'm looking at this guy he, he looks like a character like are you dressed up for Halloween no this is him and I ask him what what is your story and he tells me he just came out of prison a couple of days ago in my head I'm like yeah of course you did right in my head I'm like and so he, he says, well, you know, I went in and when I was in prison, I um, went in and I, I was part of the Aryan Brotherhood. If you don't know what that is, that's a, this, you know, a white supremacist um, group. Uh, he, he tells me that he was part of the Church of Satan uh, in LA and, he, and Anton LaVey. It's just the, the entire thing is wild. And I'm standing there thinking, who would have thought this 
and he's there with his friend who also has some things going on that I cannot even describe to you. And he tells me that while he was in prison, he had uh, an experience where he realized being part of the Aryan Brotherhood was not what he should be doing. And so he repudiated them. But when he did, they didn't let him just leave the Aryan Brotherhood like, oh, later, it's been nice having you. Instead, he, lit, he turns to the side, he lifts up his skirt, and he shows these angry scars that he has from where he was stabbed and almost killed when he decided to leave the Aryan Brothers. He turns and he shows more scars on his side and on his back. And he says, well, I made it, and now I'm out, and I'm no longer an Aryan brother. I'm no longer a Satanist. He's like, I'm just a pagan now. And I'm like, oh, just a pagan. This is good. And he goes, and I said, what does that mean? He goes, well, you know, I, I, I'm trying to follow, you know, good magic. I'm trying to follow um, um, the earth and, and the positive energy around it. And I'm not doing that stuff anymore. And I said, okay, so why are you here? though, like in an Adventist church. You know where you are, right? And he laughs. He goes, yeah, um, my mom was an Adventist and she's died now. But I said to myself, when I come out of prison, I'm going to go to a church. I'm going to pay my respects. He gives me her name. He says, hey, can you find out where she was? I just want to pay my respects. So those in the balcony who are sitting there thinking, this is crazy. I know. Where's this story going? I, I ask him if he's going to stay for the service. He's like, well, you know, I wasn't planning on, but sure, why not? He stays for the service. I see him stand when we're singing, sitting down when we're sitting, kneeling when we're praying. He comes to the door. He looks me in the eye, and he's like, hey, uh, thank you. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, I really liked your sermon. And I was like, oh, thanks. And then he says, you announced that there was potluck after church, right? What's a potluck? I was like, oh, we're going to eat. There's food. He's like, can I stay? I said, sure, you can stay. Stays, has potluck, he's with his friend. The next week, he comes back. The week after, he brings more friends. And we're there just like, what is going on? Not in a million years would we have thought something like this could have happened. And we recognize that the frontiers of the kingdom of God are always expanding. We recognize that although we may have our cynicism, we may be skeptical about who can be in, we may have our judgments of who should be given the grace of God, God does not listen to us, and I am grateful. He has his own plans and his own agenda and is working in the lives of people that we don't even know. And so here he is coming, and his name, his nickname, he, I can't remember his name, but he told me his nickname was Candle. And I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 9 that we were in last week, where we, we, we learn and notice that during darkness, God opens his arms wide with love and compassion, and that he erupts with light through darkness. And we also noted that God was not merely a flashlight or a torch or a candle, but he was instead the blazing sun that was lifting on horizons fringed with hope so that those who are in darkness can know that there is hope for their world. There is hope in their life. And here we find these three wise men, these magi. And Matthew tells us that God has sent another star because first he sent the dawn in Isaiah that's rising over a people in darkness, and now he uses another star in the heavenly constellation for these wise men. 
so that they can follow him over desert dunes, over rivers, cliffs, robber-infested territory to get to Jesus. Then God gives them wisdom so that they can deal with Herod and direct their step. And the story of these men who search for God tell us that people can be thousands of miles away geographically, thousands of miles away emotionally, alienated in their hearts, bitter, calcified, indifferent, but God is still in the business of wooing and beckoning people who are far from him. That he will send a star in a dark night that you might not understand, but they will see as an omen and they will follow God, not knowing all the details, not shading in all the, all the theology, but they will follow God because God is working and wooing people even today. And no physical, natural, or human impediment can stop the call of God in the lives of people. And today there are Many who are stargazing today, they're looking into the night sky, they're straining to try and make sense of their life. They stand and they they want to know, is there more to life than this? Where am I going? Is there a purpose to what I do every single day? What is the world becoming? And every now and again, they will glimpse a star in the east shining and they don't quite understand what it is. They're not sure if they're chasing treasures or trinkets, junk, or jewels. They're not sure what they're searching for. And for some of them, even though they're searching, they they may be looking at a person and thinking, if I can be in a relationship with this person, if I can um, be Uh, get the affirmation of this person, then my dark night will be over. There are others who are looking and trying to claim power and hoping that power can be the light that brightens the darkness that they have. And yet, we know that people who look to people or to power are chasing a lesser light in the wrong direction. And during this Advent season, I don't know about you, my friends, but I am reminded that there is a star in the dark night of our lives. That star is bright, it's inviting, and it beckons us to hope. It leads us to the act of God in Bethlehem. It leads us to the Christ. And this star is not a red herring. This is not a Facebook or Craigslist scam that we need to be careful about. We don't need to pull back We don't need to think that God is going to just drop us on the side of the road and not care about us. We don't need to think that there's there's something fishy about this. This is a star that is guiding us in our life. And for those who are searching in a dark season of your life right now, those who are searching for answers, for purpose, those who are searching for direction, Look at the Magi, look at these three wise men and see a God who says, your search is not in vain. See a God who says to you, I will never give up on you. See a God who says, as long as you are willing to seek, I am willing to be found. And in fact, let me share this text with you that someone came up to me after the first service and said, oh, you said this idea of being found. And he directs me to Romans chapter 10, quoting actually Isaiah chapter 9, And speaking about this messianic prophecy, he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. This is Advent. This is God chasing, profligate, unrelenting, unceasing for those who may not even 
be looking for him. And the task before us during the season of Advent as follows of Jesus is to discern that the ultimate quest is experienced in is expressed in non-biblical and non-theistic ways in the lives of many people in our contemporary life and not to diminish their quest because it does not look like how we would do it. During the season of Advent, it is for us to see the pain and the hurt of our loved ones. It's to see the despondency of our colleagues, the cynicism of our children, and to see those things not as rebellion, but as cries on a quest searching for light. And to continue Matthew's witness that the yearnings even of those who do not fully know what they seek are met in the act of God in Bethlehem. That we will be reminded during Advent that the hopes and fears of all our years are met in him tonight.